Would you bow your heads and would you pray together with me? Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as we meditate on your word for us today, Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock, our redeemer, the source of righteousness and hope and joy and peace in our lives. Amen. So the first week as we began this study of Romans, I shared this quote from Martin Luther with you, and I And I told you that what Luther believed was, he believed if you didn't understand the book of Romans, you wouldn't understand the rest of the Bible, or maybe a better way to say it, a more positive way is, once you understand the message that Paul teaches in the book of Romans, it's as if the whole scriptures just open up to you. It's like um, all of the scriptures have now been illuminated by a bright light, and you can finally understand them. Now, I also shared with you that Luther thought every Christian should memorize the book of Romans. How are you doing on that? No, but, but seriously, I don't know about you, but I've really been blessed so far as we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and I look forward to the rest of the summer as we just dive continually week after week into this book. Now, uh, this week, we're going to be in chapter 6, but before we get there, I want to tell you about the first sermon I ever wrote at seminary. Um, I, I uh, turned the sermon in, and when I got it back, can you uh, re-plug the thing for me? It's all of a sudden not working for me. Thanks. Let's try that. Um, When I got it back, there you go, at the top, the professor had written these letters, S-I-E-P, in kind of large print like that. And I had no idea what that meant. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, sermon is exceptionally poor? Um, uh, You know, uh, something is easily promoted? I, I couldn't figure out what it was. So I went to my professor, I go, all right, what's S-I-E-P? And he explained to me that it's a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. By the way, the J in Latin is I in English. I don't know how that works. But anyway, that's what that stands for. It means simul justus et peccator, which literally means in English that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. In other words, we know from God's word, as we've been learning in Romans, that we've been given this gift, this gift of the righteousness of God, that righteousness of God that's been revealed to us that is received through faith. We know that that righteousness is ours already. It's not something we get someday in heaven. It's something that we've been given already. When God looks at you and me, he sees his holy, perfect, forgiven children. He sees saints. But we also know that when we look in the mirror, we still see sinners, don't we? And it's that tension that we live in right now, right here on this earth, that in one way, we are what God has claimed we are. We are his saints. But at the same time, the old Adam, as the Bible says, remains in us. We are still sinners. And so in chapter 6, Paul is wrestling through two questions that we have to understand as we live in this tension of what it means to be a forgiven child of God who continues to sin. And uh, so Paul is going to deal with these two questions. And the first question is, should I sin more so I get more grace, right? I mean, if, if indeed every time I sin, I am forgiven, then why wouldn't I sin more so I get more forgiveness, okay? So that's the first question. The second question he's going to deal with is, well, can I sin more since I won't get punished for it? In other words, if, if I know that 
I've got my get out of jail free card from God. Why wouldn't I just keep sinning as much as I want? It doesn't really matter what I do, does it? So those are the two questions Paul is going to wrestle with. Let's go ahead and, and, uh, and, and dive in as we look again, remembering this tension that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we're all justified by that grace as a gift through Christ Jesus. Let's, uh, let's wrestle with that together. So we're in Romans chapter 6, uh, starting at, at verse 1. Um, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible, page 942, if you want to follow along. But again, I'd encourage you, bring your Bibles to church. I know we're Lutherans. We're not supposed to do that, but you know, come on, we can do it. All right. So he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, that's that first question. Should I just keep sinning more? Because the more I sin, the more grace I'm going to get. And then my translation, the ESV that I've got here, says, by no means. Paul says, that's his simple answer to the question, should I sin more so I get more grace? He says, by no means. Now, literally, in the original language, this is kind of what we would call an idiom. It's a a phrase that if you just look at the words, you don't exactly know what it means. Because literally what it says is, no become. And, and so, again, we have to try to figure out what, what that meant. Now, now, by the way, in the original language, there are two words for no. In Greek, there are two different words for no. Here's how my Greek professor explained it to me once. The first word for no, if you ask a girl out on a date and you get the first word for no, you should wait a week and ask her again because she might say yes. If you ask a girl out on a date and you get the second word for no, don't bother. Don't bother asking again, because she's never going to say yes. By the way, every once in a while, it's not here, but every once in a while, in Paul's letters, he uses both words for no. And you know what that means? If you were the last man on the face of the earth, I would never date you, okay? It's kind of like, <laughs> no way. But, but here he uses the second one of those words, okay? So it's the more emphatic word for no Literally, he's saying, I mean, if we were going to use a modern-day idiom for it, you know, the question would be, so should I keep sinning so I get more grace? And the answer would be, are you on drugs? I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, absolutely not, by no means. And then he goes on to unpack that. He says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? In other words, we've been given new life through the waters of our baptism, he says. And then take a look at verse 4. He says, we were therefore buried with him by baptism into death. It's as if we went into the tomb with Jesus when we were baptized. And he says, and that happened in order that, so that, and then the end of the verse, he says, so that we too might walk in newness of life. I want you to think about that for a minute. What does it mean that through the waters of our baptism, we can now walk in newness of life? I remember many years ago, I was, uh, this is when I was, back when I was still teaching, before I became a, a pastor, I was a Lutheran school teacher. And uh, we had our big teachers conference up in Madison, Wisconsin. And, uh, and I had to pick up one of our conference speakers at the airport and drive him to the conference. Now, he flew into O'Hare because it was cheaper. So I had to actually pick him up at O'Hare and drive all the way up to Madison. So, you know, I was in the car with this stranger I just met uh, for a number of hours, you know. And actually, it was kind of a great ride. We had a pleasant conversation. But at one point, he turned and looked at me. And this is the question he asked me. He said, okay, 
so when were you baptized? I said, well, when I was a little baby. He goes, okay, so how's your life different because you're a child of God than it would have been if you weren't? No one ever asked me that question before. I never really thought about that before. You know, one of the disadvantages of being baptized as a little child is you don't, you don't have like the life before to talk about, right? I remember being at a, a different conference once and some guys up there saying, well, I was a dirty, rotten swindler before I found Jesus and now that I found Jesus, my life is awesome. And I'm like, man, I wish I had a story like that. I wish I had been a dirty, rotten swindler. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you, you get what I'm saying, right? But, but this guy was asking me, he's saying, so how is your life different? And of course, it's just imagination and speculation, right? But the fact is, our life is different because we've been given this gift of God's grace. And, and so walking in newness of life means we, we live our life here and now differently because of the grace that we've been given, because of the change that's happened in our lives. So he goes on then in, uh, in verse five to talk about this. He says, so if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, and listen to this, he says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. How many of you remember Flip Wilson, the old comedian? Remember him? And remember what he'd say anytime he'd get caught doing something wrong? The devil made me do it. Like, it wasn't my fault. Devil made me do it, right? Well, isn't Paul just kind of doing the same thing here? Isn't he just saying, well, we're slaves to sin. It's, it's not my fault. It's just sin, right? That's not what he's really saying. He's not like trying to give us all a pass and say, well, we're t it's totally out of our control. Sin just makes us do stuff. But he is acknowledging the fact that as you and I know, we could try all we want to fix things in our lives and, and on our own, we fail, don't we? we? We fall short. It's like sin has a hold of our lives and, and we just can't seem to do anything about it. Literally, he says, sin enslaves us. Now, I'm not gonna talk about that anymore right now. He's actually gonna unpack that a lot more next week in chapter seven. He's gonna wrestle more through what that means for us to be slaves to sin. But, but the important thing he says is, not that we were slaves to sin, but now that we've been set free from that. Literally, in verse eight, look, it says, now, if we have died with Christ, in other words, if our death already happened with Jesus on the cross, then we believe that we will also live with him just as he rose from the dead. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And that means death no longer has dominion over us. Now we all know where death came from, right? And Nick talked about this a little bit last week. It, 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 we go all the way back to the garden. And, and when, when Adam and Eve first sinned, and it was through their sin that now death came into God's creation. And, and you, know, you know what they say, right? There's two things that you can't avoid in life, death and taxes. And uh, I, I don't know about the taxes part. Maybe some of you have found ways to avoid taxes. I don't want to know about it. But anyway, but, but we all die. You know, that's been made abundantly clear to us again this week, hasn't it? So what does it mean that we've been set free from sin, and because we've set, been set free from sin, death 
has no dominion over us. It means even when our friend and our pastor dies, we have hope. We have hope. He goes on to say this. He says that Jesus' death was once for all. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Because we don't, I don't think we talk about this enough. Um, I, I don't think we get, help people get their brains around this enough. It, it says literally that Jesus' death on the cross was once for all people. So whose sins are forgiven? Everyone's. But, but then, of course, there's the question, well, then, what does it matter whether you believe in Jesus or not? If he forgave everyone's sins, then doesn't everybody just go to heaven it isn't, if, the, if everybody's sins are forgiven? Well, think of it this way. Imagine, now, I'm asking you to imagine this. This is not actually true, okay? Imagine that I told you that while you were sitting in church this morning, my accountant paid off your mortgage. My gift to you. Did I tell you this is not really true, right? Okay, all right, good. good. But, but seriously, how many of you have a mortgage? Okay, so imagine that I just told you your mortgage is paid off. There's only one condition. You can't call your bank and check on it. You gotta just trust me, all right? Now, I imagine some of you would go home today and you would have mortgage-burning ceremonies. You would trust me. You would say, I believe, Pastor Mark. He wouldn't lie to us. My mortgage is paid off. Get out the paper. Let's burn the mortgage. The house is ours free and clear. We're all set. But I imagine some of you would still write your mortgage check later this month. Go, he's nuts. He didn't do that. I don't believe it. Now, if I had really done it, whose mortgage is left? Nobody's. But some of you will actually believe that and start acting like your mortgage has been paid off and start enjoying the blessing and the benefit that that is but others of you will go, no, I don't believe it, and nothing will change in your life. It'll, it'll be as if you still have your mortgage. So when we talk about the fact that Jesus paid the price for sins once for all, that all people's sins are forgiven, we mean it. Paul means it when he says that. There's not a single sin that has ever been committed by anyone that Jesus didn't take care of on the cross. The problem is some people just don't believe in that. And because they don't believe that they've been given this gift of forgiveness, they walk around still carrying around the guilt of their sin. Uh, they, they, they walk around acting as if nothing has changed in their life. And by the way, they even doubt that the person that forgave them the sin even exists. So in the end, when Jesus comes again, the reason some people will not go with us to heaven is not because They've got to pay the price for their sins. Jesus did that. The reason some people won't go with us to heaven is because they don't believe what's been done for them. He goes on in uh, verse 12. He says this. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I love this image that he uses here of being instruments of righteousness instead of instruments of sin. I don't know if all of you know this, she knows this because every time she sees me, she says, when are you going to get your violin out and play with us? Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. But, uh, 
But when I was a kid, I took violin lessons for a lot of years, and I did play violin for a number of years. I would be terrible now. But anyway, but, but I remember one particular lesson. I had a, a violin teacher who was, like you, an incredibly gifted player. And uh, I, I, remember, um, I remember one time in a lesson, I would played this piece, and I thought I played it pretty well, and, and, and my violin teacher was like, no, 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 like this. And he played it, and it sounded 10 times better when he played it than when I did. And, and, and I said to him, I said, I, I was kind of a cocky kid, as you might imagine. Anyway, I, I, I said to him, I said, well, anybody can make it sound like that if you've got a violin like yours, because he had this beautiful violin, this expensive violin. And he just looked at me, and he carefully set his violin down. He said, give me your violin. And he played my violin, and I had never heard my violin make sounds like that. <laughs> so so, so the, the, point is, the point is this. When God says that we are instruments of righteousness, I love that image because I think some of us might feel like a Stradivarius, and I think some of us feel like a violin somebody found at a junkyard somewhere but it's not the instrument, it's the one that plays it. And, uh, and in God's hands, you are an incredible instrument for righteousness in the world around you. It, it don't, it's not yourself that you doubt. Don't, don't doubt God's ability to do amazing things in and through you. That's the image that Paul gives us. So, the answer to the first question then. So should I just uh, sin more so I get more grace? Paul's kind of like, are you on drugs? Why, why would you do that? How could you do that? That's not who you are anymore. You are a child of God who's been given new life, and you are an instrument of righteousness in the world. So why would you even think about sinning more? But now he's got to address the second question, right? Can I sin more since I won't get punished? Or, or really kind of what's behind that question is Christians going, well, if those guys aren't going to get punished for sin, then they're just going to keep sinning, right? That's kind of the idea behind this. And, uh, and, and so let's take a look at verses 15 and following. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And again, he says, are you on drugs? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? In other words, what he's saying here is, you're always going to be a slave of something. It's not like you were slaves to sin and now you've been set free to do whatever you want, Paul says. He says, you were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to righteousness. Now you're going to do the right things. Now you're going to do what God has called you to do. Take a look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, he says, I get it, this is hard to get your brain around, okay? But he says, for just as you were once presented your members to, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So let me ask you this. Is this notebook that I've taken my notes in to get ready to preach today, is this notebook a slave to gravity? 
It is, right? If I take my hands off, what's it going to do? Is it going to float up to the ceiling? It's going to fall, right? Are you sure? Now some of you are going, all right, what's he got going on, right? right? But no, it's pretty simple, right? That's what's going to happen, and it's going to happen every single time. And the book doesn't go, you know what? This next time I might just float up to the ceiling, right? It's a slave to gravity. In other words, it does what it does just because that's what it does. What, what Paul is saying in, in again, and trying to get our brains around it in our terms is, it's the same thing for us as believers. There's a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah that talks about that day is going to come when you won't have to teach people how to obey God's law because you remember what it says? It says the law will be written, remember where? On our hearts. We'll just do it. It's just, it's just what we do. You probably heard the story this week of the, of the teacher that in the school where, once again, it looked like there was going to be a terrible tragedy. A, a, a student brought a gun to class and pulled the gun out and started shooting. You remember what the teacher did? Charged him. Ran right at him. Tackled him. Even though he got shot on the way doing it. Didn't care. Just, just took that took kid down so no one else got hurt. Now, now I want to be that kind of person, Right? But my guess is, you, like me, were, heard that story, and one of your first thought was, would I have done that? I, I'd like to think I would, right? I'd like to think I'd be, like, back on 9-11, would, would have been one of the passengers that rushed the cabin to take that plane down so it didn't get crashed into the White House. I, I'd like to think I'd be that kind of person, but I just don't know whether I would. What, what Paul is saying here is, when we let the power of God work in our lives. When we spend time in his word and receiving the gift of baptism and the Lord's Supper, when, when we uh, become partakers of his grace as a gift in our lives, it begins to mold us and shape us and change us and make us into a new person where we don't have to choose to do good. We're just gonna do it because it's just who we are. So if that's true, we don't have to worry about people going, well, if I'm not going to get punished, I just might as, well, might as well go and sin more. Because that's not who we are anymore, Paul is saying. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we've answered the two questions. But, but, but now, in, as he wraps up this chapter, he wants to just make sure that we understand the implications of those answers in our lives. He says, where you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were not ashamed? In, in, in other words, he says, think back on your life when you were just doing whatever you thought was right, and it wasn't God's plan for your life. How'd, how'd that work out for you? I remember a, a couple that told me uh, that their marriage was just in shambles, and uh, and I was talking with them a little bit, and, uh, and they were saying, you know, that, that they had tried this, and they had tried that, and they had tried that. And I just looked at them, and I said, how's that stuff working for you? They said, not very good. I said, how about you let God try to sort this out? He goes on, and he says this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And if you want to not memorize all of Romans, but just one verse of it, this might be a good verse, this next one. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact is, we have been set free. 
So let me ask you this. Let's go back to what that professor wrote on my sermon. We are simultaneously saint and sinner. We know it, right? I mean, we know we're saints because God has told us. His promise to us is as he looks into this room this morning and he looks at you and me, he sees holy, perfect, forgiven children of God. I love in the Old Testament, whenever God talks about David, you know what God says about David? He says, he was a man after my own heart who who never did anything that wasn't what I wanted him to do. And I read that and I go, David? Seriously? God, did you read your own Bible? Did you see some of the stuff that David did? But God sees him through the eyes of Jesus. And that's how he sees you and me. Now, again, you and I, when we, when we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror, we see a sinner, right? But, but here's just a final thought for you. We are indeed simultaneously saint and sinner. Until we get to heaven, that's the way it's going to be. But let me ask you this. Which one of those is more real right now? We might be tempted to think the sinner part, right? Because that's what we see. But think about what you're saying when you say that. What you're really saying is, my view of myself is more real than God's view of me. And that's not true, is it? Folks, we may still sin. But as we're going to see in the next chapter, Paul is actually going to say, that is not who I am. I am a forgiven child of God. Amen.